0: the fire in winter evenings long ago what ghosts i raised at your desire to make your leaping blood run slow how old how grave how wise we grow what christian ghost can make us chill save those that troop in mournful row the ghosts we all can raise at will the beast can talk in barn and byre on christmas eve old legends know as one by one the years retire, we men fall silent, then I trow. Such sights has memory to show, such voices from the distance thrill. Ah, me, they come with Christmas snow, the ghosts we all can raise at will. Welcome to the first episode of Lord and Lace.
1: I'm Suzanne. I'm Karina. We're your hosts and Laudanum and Lace is a podcast about macabre victoriana, dark history, haunted places and objects, poisoners in petticoats, crinolines and corsets and other gothic musings from us.
0: You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, just search for us under Laudanum and Lace podcast and if you enjoyed today's episode please subscribe to. Today we opened with a reading from a
1: poem by Andrew Lang. Published in the 1889 edition of an old South Australian newspaper called The Quiz and Lantern. And this ties into today's Christmas themed episode, in which we'll be talking about the age old tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas time and the supernatural origins of Christmas. We'll explore traditional folklore and discuss some of our favourite Christmas ghost stories and films as well as discuss true hauntings and have a look at what was in the headlines around Christmas time more than a hundred years ago. When you think about Christmas time, what do you think of? We probably don't immediately think of ghosts and spirits, but today as we look beyond the colorful tinsel and gifts, we'll begin to unwrap ancient Yule and midwinter traditions that are enlivened with all kinds of ghostly and magical beings. We'll take a look at how Christmas was almost cancelled but was saved by ghosts. Do you enjoy Christmas time, Karina?
0: I do. I don't mind. I mean, it's quite hot and that's one thing I don't (laughs) like. I mean, I would love, because I've got family in England and Scotland, I'd love to actually experience the snow and I think I would love that personally. Do you like Christmas?
1: Yeah, so... Since I've actually been researching this episode, I have a whole new appreciation for Christmas. Of course, the Christmas we're going to talk about today is a bit different from the Australian Christmas. We'll be talking about the typical midwinter Christmas. Uh, Obviously, here in Australia, it can be very hot, uh, even up to 40 degrees or so, which really kills the whole white Christmas vibe. I would love to see a white Christmas too. Many Christmas traditions that we know and love today can be traced back to the Roman festival of Saturnalia, the worship of Saturn in the Roman calendar, which took place from around the 17th to 24th of December. This was a time of revelry, feasting and giving presents. Obviously, we still feast and we still give presents. They made sacrifices at the Temple of Saturn, And in the forum, it was also a time that people frolicked naked through the streets and had wild orgies. I'm assuming you don't spend your Christmas like that, Karina.
0: (laughs) No, sorry. (laughs) Sorry to be a disappointment.
1: So the, the Roman Christmas was much more liberal than the modern Christmas we know. I'm sure there might be Christmas orgies still happening, but... It's just not quite as open. And in Roman times, around the same time on the 25th of December, it was Natalia Solis Invicti, which was the cult of the sun. So it was a very important and busy time in the Roman and pagan calendar. The first mention of Jesus' birth date being around this time, which is the winter solstice, was in 336 A.D., Christianity was still a relatively new religion, but as it spread and became more widely practised, the Church chose this significant time in the pagan calendar to celebrate the birth of Christ. Just as ancient winter solstice rites celebrated the coming of light after winter darkness, Christ was the new light from what was perceived as pagan darkness. By integrating Christian worship into the pagan calendar, it offered people something familiar, especially as many were unwilling to give up the holidays and traditions that they had practised for generations. It also signified a triumph by the church over paganism. And, of course, this time of year in Europe, not Australia, was midwinter, and Christmas also stems from other ancient midwinter traditions. Pagan Winter Solstice rites was celebrated all over Europe and that's the yule or yule tide it was the darkest shortest day of the year and even though here in the southern hemisphere where we are christmas is actually midsummer we still celebrate christmas at this time because of these origins of christmas in the christian calendar and we can still find traces of all of these ancient midwinter traditions. One of these traditions is the supernatural, and Christmas has its roots deeply in the supernatural. As I mentioned, midwinter was the darkest, shortest day of the year, and imagine a time when people widely believed in miracles and magic. They felt a deep connection with nature Their lives were dominated by the seasons and harvest. They felt that they were surrounded by unseen entities and spirits. And at the time of the year when the days were the shortest and the nights were the longest, the veil between worlds was thought to be so thin that the line between the dead and the living could be crossed. It was a time of the year when spirits and ghosts wandered freely among us. In Germany and Northern Europe, Yule was associated also with the wild hunt, the god Odin. It was at that time of year that Odin would lead a procession of ghostly hunters across the midnight sky. It was said if you encountered the hunt, you could be abducted and taken down to the underworld. Your spirit could also be pulled away as you slept and be drawn into this ghostly cavalcade. And similar incarnations of the wild hunt at midwinter existed all over Europe, Wales, Slavic countries. It was just a time of increased supernatural activity. And it's hard to relate today to this, especially in Australia, being summer. You'll see as we go on, we still carry on some traditions. Other supernatural things that were done at Christmas time were divination, that was a common Christmas activity. So have you ever used a Ouija board or done any kind of divination, Karina?
0: I've done it several times. We have quite a few different forms of the Ouija board um, and a psychic circle board as well, but I also love pendulums. And Have you ever used a Ouija board?
1: I have when I was young and I traumatised myself. And then I saw The Exorcist and vowed never again.
0: Well, that's fair enough. That's a pretty brutal movie, really. (laughs) That kind of divination
1: was actually quite commonly practised because of that time of midwinter, so going from the darkest night of the year, they celebrated that because they were looking forward from then on to the days getting longer and brighter life coming back to the world so they thought that it was a good time to look into the future was the end of the year people reflected they made resolutions and this kind of fortune telling was part of that russian orthodox christmas follows the lunar calendar but divination is traditional on christmas eve it's the only time of the year when it was sanctioned by the church and this time of the Epiphany during January 6th to 19th was a time of year called Svityaki with deep pagan roots. And for them also it was a time when spirits would run wild. Fortune-telling was done by cards, so tarot cards, normal playing cards, uh, candle and mirror scrying, reading ash, reading candle wax, which they did in a similar way to reading tea leaves and it was done to predict the future the weather harvests love it was just looking towards the new year the light the brighter days and coming out of this winter darkness Uh, another thing they do which has a link to what things we still do at christmas time was that food was not cleared away from the table it was often left as an offering to the ancestors or spirits that might visit during the night. We still leave out food and drink on Christmas. Do you do that, Karina, you and your kids?
0: We definitely do. We do quite a bit for Santa. Sometimes he's left an alcoholic beverage.
1: Oh, that's nice. I think, well, they would have done that too. That would have been a really nice offering to the spirits. And again, it goes right back to ancient Rome and ancient traditions of midwinter, of leaving offerings to the gods and the spirits because the whole world was alive with these supernatural forces. So when you're putting out those carrots and milk for Santa, you can think back to ancient times when people did that too, but it wasn't for Santa. Another ancient... Slavic Christmas tradition, which I really loved, was the funeral mask. I think you'll find this really cool, Karina. So at Christmas, they reenacted a funeral to signify the death of the year. Wow. Yeah. So they they actually did this really elaborate mock funeral. Sometimes they did a procession to the graveyard and it was meant to mark the death of the year. In Ireland on the Twelfth Night, it was known for people to sit around a table, each lighting a candle around a cake. The order in which the candle burnt out signified the order that the people sitting at the table would die. Wow. So that's not unlike the birthday cake, don't you think?
0: That's what I was just thinking, actually. It's very much like a birthday cake, except only a lot darker.
1: Do you have any particular traditions or things that you do at Christmas in your family?
0: We don't have any unusual traditions, I suppose. It's the same sort of thing that I guess most families do where the presents are often found on Christmas morning underneath the tree and, you know, the typical lunch. However, um, we have the roast because my family is, of course, English, so we sort of do, do the traditional form of lunch. Have you ever told ghost stories at Christmas? The only ghost story I've really told at Christmas is the the story of Scrooge and yeah. that something I guess that is a bit of a tradition I suppose that we do is watch all the different versions of that movie at Christmas time.
1: A Christmas carol is probably the best known Christmas ghost story, but the tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas time stretches back well before this was written and has its roots in Christmas's supernatural past.
0: If you can imagine, before the internet or TV, people had to pass the time somehow, especially in midwinter when the nights were long, dark and cold. People gathered together around the fire. They had no electricity, so the fire was the centre of the home. People huddled around it for warmth. In the past, winters were colder and more bitter than the mild winters we experience today. In the 16th century, the world experienced a mini ice age that lasted around 200 years. Many people worried that they wouldn't survive the winter. They passed long nights talking and telling stories that had been handed down from ancient oral traditions, and later, if they had the means, They passed the time reading and often read aloud to each other. These stories were full of midwinter spirits and spectres, magical beings and strange tales. It is from these long winter nights that the tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas emerged. But Christmas, as we know it, almost never was. Our modern
1: Christmas has more in common with a medieval or Tudor Christmas than a Christmas of the early Victorian era. So most people associate the modern Christmas with the Victorian era, but that only came about later. The Tudors loved a good Christmas, and they marked the day in a very similar way to us, with feasting and gifts. They appointed a Lord of Misrule, who was appointed to oversee Christmas revelries. that included drunkenness and wild partying. So it was a little bit more Roman Saturnalia than we know today. Uh, Have you spent a Christmas in drunken wild partying and reveling?
0: I've had quite a few drinks, but I wouldn't really say it's a party. I I do hang out in my front yard amongst all the lights and everything. (laughs) Yep.
1: So the Lord of Misrule had to watch over everyone to make sure things didn't get too out of hand, and I'm presuming out of hand meant really out of hand and I like to think of people they weren't different to us people maybe think that people from the past were like these different unfamiliar people that we wouldn't recognize but as I'm sure you found in your research people are pretty much the same right
0: pretty much it's just years have gone on and fashion's changed and the way of thinking's changed but I like to think they were very similar to us really
1: Yeah, definitely, and the Tudors, they love to hit it at Christmas. Henry VIII, in his first year of reigning, his first Christmas as king, is reported to have spent over the equivalent in today's money of £13 million on his Christmas celebrations.
0: Gee whiz, that's (laughs) a lot, spending on Christmas.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a big Christmas. I mean, you know, it paid for the whole court. To feast. They had the 12 days of Christmas. They paid entertainers and musicians and it was a really big affair and they like to tell ghost stories too. Uh, the custom of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve, it was already a firm tradition by the Elizabethan age and William Shakespeare mentioned it in The Winter's Tale of 1611 where this is a quote from it. Are sad tales best for winter? I have one of sprites and goblins. Winter tales and stories was actually a name that referred to fantastical tales that was about spirits, fairies, sprites, phantasms, and it was a well-known term. Uh, It it was also mentioned in Hamlet after the ghost is seen on the ramparts, which is a, a bad omen, Then it is said, with the coming of light, Christmas Day, that witches and spirits will no longer have dominion. No spirit dare stir abroad, no witch have power to charm. So we can see the roots of telling ghost stories, it's already established, Shakespeare's talking about it, it's been happening for a long time. It's only now it's really being put into writing. But by the 17th century... Oliver Cromwell and other Puritan power players basically cancelled Christmas. It's true, Christmas was cancelled. I'm sure lots of people have probably wanted to cancel Christmas at one year or another, but it did actually happen. It was seen as decadent and ungodly pagan revelry, part of Catholic dogma which Protestant England had shunned. In the 1640s, Christmas worship was totally banned by Parliament. Shops and offices were forced to open, and by the restoration, these laws were overturned and relaxed so people could celebrate Christmas again, but it was never quite the same. It had slipped into obscurity. By the early Victorian age, it was only a minor holiday, and it was scarcely celebrated with only one workday being a public holiday. And a lot of people didn't even observe Christmas. But without ghosts, Christmas would not be what it is today. In 1843, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol was published and reignited the public interest in Christmas because Charles Dickens looked back to the old traditions of Christmas and memories of his childhood And it can't be a coincidence that preceding A Christmas Carol, Dickens did a tour of America, where the American writer Washington Irving, known for Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle, wrote and published a series of essays and short stories about old Christmas, reminiscences from his childhood and forgotten traditions, including telling gross stories. This nostalgic romance seemed to have rubbed off on Dickens, who penned A Christmas Carol. And like you said, Karina, that's a bit of a tradition in your house, watching it, and you said it's your favourite Christmas story.
0: Mm, I think it always has been. It's been one of my favourites since I was, I don't even know what age, I, I guess quite young, because I remember my dad used to watch the original black and white version every year at Christmas time. Was that the um,
1: 1948 one or around that, something?
0: I believe it was, yeah. And it's quite yeah. atmospheric. Oh, very much so. I mean, there's so many different versions. There's even versions sort of dating back to the late 1800s and then uh, there's a couple of versions done, I believe, in the 1920s as well.
1: Yeah, I had written down there was two silent versions, um, 1910 and a later one in the 20s. Um, There was a 1930s one, but I think the one we most know from our childhoods is that black and white one you mentioned. And what else do you like about it?
0: I think one of my favourite things about Scrooge is, I mean, apart from being a very haunting story, um, mostly I guess because I grew up with it, I was given one of the Victorian reproduction copies of the book, when I was maybe about nine years old at Christmas time. Uh yeah, and I just used to love it. I loved the 1984 version as well with um George C. Scott. He was another actor that was in another really good ghost movie called The Changeling.
1: Oh yeah, that's amazing that film. It's so creepy.
0: Oh, it's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. But I guess it's just I love how the three ghosts come come to visit him and throughout the night and just, the, you know, the tapping on the door and clanking of the chains. It's just I can't really think of anything I don't like about that movie. It's just very haunting.
1: You read the book. You said you got the reproduction.
0: Yes, yeah, with the original pictures and everything.
1: Yeah, they're beautiful, the original pictures. And, of course, it's got the three ghosts which each represent the past,
0: present and future. The ghosts represent this crossroads in the year, the Christmas past, present and future swirling all around as Scrooge reflects on his life. As people were poised at the edge of the year in winter darkness, they reflected on the past. They often thought about people that were no longer with them. Christmas can be a difficult time of year, especially if you have lost someone, and there can often be a sense of anxiety at the end of the year. The winter solstice signified death but also rebirth as they waited for spring and life to renew. So it was a time of reflection but also resolution and hope. These age-old concepts that were fundamental to people at this time of year tie into A Christmas Carol and other traditional fireside ghost tales of this season. And the success of A Christmas Carol
1: seemed to revive the tradition of Christmas in Britain? this is when the commercialization of christmas really began shaping christmas into what we know today so a lot of people get annoyed because they find christmas overly commercialized do you do you feel that sometimes
0: Definitely. In fact, I mean, I don't really go to the shops very much anymore. I tend to stay away. I'd rather go out to the country or something. But I I think that's the main thing that puts me off is just it's way too commercialised. It's way too many people. Everyone appears to be stressed and, and rushing around. And I even try and avoid the streets around Christmas time, to be honest. So you might get
1: stressed because you feel the need to send out Christmas cards decorate the house, get a tree, prepare a big Christmas lunch. But most of these practices, while based in older traditions, are the norm today because of the big Victorian Christmas revival spurred on in part by Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. There was a rising middle class, more money and leisure time to fill in the Victorian era. Printing was becoming cheaper and more accessible Literacy was improving, so books were a big seller around Christmas time. Um, there were so many newspapers, journals, magazines. People's desire was insatiable for this kind of printed media. And Karina, you've you've looked through a few,
0: and you've found that lots of them do have ghost stories. Yes, definitely. Most newspapers, as we look back into history. And this is in various countries in America, Europe, even in Australia. There were many ghost stories printed into the Australian newspapers of the time. And it's really quite fascinating that they still follow through with that tradition, especially in Australia as well, because we're so far away from Europe. And every year there seem to be new ghost stories or poems printed around Christmas time.
1: Yeah, people really brought Christmas with them to Australia, even if they didn't have midwinter. They brought all these traditions from Britain and Germany and all these different peoples that came to Australia brought their own customs. And the thirst for these kind of ghost stories around Christmas time was just, as I said, insatiable. They're in the tradition of this romanticised oral storytelling and people especially in the big industrialised cities took comfort in the traditions associated with a simpler rural life, older times, much like how people get the nostalgia feels now for things from when they are a child or older times, simpler times. It was also a transition from the high Gothic literature of the 18th century to this more modern Gothic sensibility. The Victorian ghost story was usually based more in reality with domestic settings, relatable characters, and like A Christmas Carol, they're often allegorical, including Victorian morality, or they had some kind of comment on society. They blended religious ideas with modern spiritualism and secular social reform. And this is when most of the famous Victorian ghost stories that we know today were written. Emma James, who wrote some of the most fantastic Ghost Stories of the Victorian Era, wrote in the preface of his first anthology of ghost tales, which was called Ghost Stories of Antiquity in 1904, said, I wrote these stories at long intervals. Most of them were read to patient friends, usually at the season of Christmas. So he was writing ghost stories especially for Christmas And Charles Dickens regularly published Christmas ghost stories in the magazines and newspapers that he edited. He wrote many ghost stories himself. There's a whole book that compiles them. Uh, He published Elizabeth Gaskell's story called Old Nurses Story in the magazine he edited called Household Words, In 1852, she, of course, is best known for novels like North and South and Cranford. You might have seen the North and South adaptation on TV. It's quite popular. And this story, you would like this story, Karina, if you haven't read it. It's about an old nursemaid reflecting on her life and telling the story of a ghostly child that haunted a house where she once worked So it's a story about a ghost child that lures other children to their deaths in the snow.
0: Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, you'd you'd
1: like that one because it's the whole Victorian child ghost. It's got a kind of woman in black character in it as well. Elizabeth Gaskell had another Christmas ghost story, The Ghost in the Garden Room, published in a Christmas anthology of ghost stories, The Haunted House. Each story was about a different room of a haunted house. The series of stories was published in Charles Dickens' magazine all the year round for Christmas in 1859. He had several of his own stories included, and another included was The Ghost in the Cupboard Room by Wilkie Collins. And here's a fact for you, Karina. 50 to 70% of Victorian ghost stories were written by women. Mm, That's intriguing. Henry James's turn of the screw begins with men gathered around the fire on Christmas Eve telling chilling stories. Another famous author that wrote a Christmas ghost story was Robert Louis Stevenson, who's known for Kidnap, Treasure Island. He had a Christmas story, which you'll love this one, Karina. The Body Snatcher from 1884 based on the real-life events of Burke and Hare. And these were two men who dug up bodies from graveyards to sell to an unscrupulous doctor called Robert Knox for dissection at his anatomy lectures. Are you familiar with the story of Burke and Hare?
0: I am because I actually have family who live in Edinburgh. So when I went there last, we actually went on a tour And they mentioned that over there. But I've been to the Robert Knox house and the cemetery where they used to dig the bodies up from. (laughs) Yes, it's it's absolutely fascinating, really. Just imagine that, how they would have just quietly walked out into the night, slowly into the cemetery and try and dig it up without anyone hearing. It's just haunting. They didn't have enough bodies for the medical students. So this doctor
1: kind of... Got a bit proactive in procuring bodies, so no one was safe. Um, but this story, when it was first released, that's the Robert Louis Stevenson one, at Christmas time, there was an interesting publicity campaign. Six men were paid to roam the London streets wearing large coffin shaped sandwich boards with plaster skulls. I presume they were masks and this caused such a stir that the police had to be called to disperse people mm-hmm. would you walk around with a coffin sandwich board
0: absolutely <laughs> why wouldn't <laughs> coffin why would you goes help? with anything if you're a goth anyway <laughs> And like any self-respecting goth, I love Edgar Allan Poe too. Across the sea in America, Edgar Allan Poe was writing gothic literature often with similar midwinter settings. The Raven was in fact inspired by a talking raven in another Charles Dickinson story with supernatural overtones, Barnaby Rudge. And it's no coincidence that The Raven is set in the bleak month of December. The poem is another example of a midwinter tale centred around a man sitting by the fire on a winter's night as he laments and reminisces of his deceased love, Lenore. His story, The Pit and the Pendulum, was also first published in a book and marketed specifically as a Christmas gift. It was aptly called The Gift, A Christmas and New Year's Present for 1843. Have you seen the movie version of it, Suzanne? Yeah, there's a few, but my favourite
1: is the classic 1961 adaptation with Vincent Price and my gothic goddess, Barbara Steele. It's one of those stunning high gothic adaptations by Roger Corman in his Edgar Allan Poe cycle of films. There was also a 1991 adaptation by Stuart Gordon of reanimator fame and at least a dozen more with the first being a short film, from 1913, a Christmas ghost story that I really loved as a child was The Children of Green No from 1954 by Lucy M. Boston. It was the first book in her Green No series and it was very Christmassy. Atmospherically set around midwinter as Christmas approaches, Tosland begins to glimpse the ghosts of other children. Soon he befriends them and finds that they lived in the house during the reign of Charles II and died of the Great Plague. Other famous authors that wrote Christmas ghost stories, James Joyce, Arthur Conan Doyle, modern authors like Robert Ackman, Neil Gaiman, Anne Rice, Stephen King, uh, H.P. Lovecraft had a Christmas horror story, the festival, uh, even Sweet Valley High. You might remember that teen novel series from the 80s and kind of early 90s. They had a Christmas ghost novel, The Christmas Ghost, by Francine Pascal, and The Babysitter's Club had a Christmas chiller as well. Did you ever read those books?
0: I actually have those books. <laughs> <laughs> of course you I, I, do. <laughs> I don't get rid of anything. I loved Sweet Valley High and <laughs> Babysitter's Club. I, I'm admitting it. But, yeah, I've still got a copy of those books.
1: Yeah, as a young girl, I loved them too, and my favourites were always the ghost ones. So that's how ingrained the ghost story at Christmas time is. Obviously, many of them have been adapted for TV and film as well. We talked about Christmas Carol. You loved watching that film. Did you ever watch any of the animated ones? There was tons of animated ones for kids. A couple were Mister Magoo's Christmas Carol, Mickey's Christmas Carol, and. My favourite, not animated, but puppetry, The Muppets' Christmas Carol. Mm. Do you watch that?
0: I remember that. I've, as sad as this is, I've even seen the Barbie version of A Christmas Carol. <laughs> and uh, um, the Jim I didn't Christmas. know there was a Barbie version. Yeah. yeah, they released it maybe about four or five years ago now. It's actually quite cute. But um, is, is Ken Scrooge? <laughs> I don't think Ken's in it, actually.
1: Oh, so it's just an old girl Christmas carol.
0: <laughs> well, it's going back in time to the Victorian era, so.
1: Oh, that's cute. I was about to say, is it about fashions, past, present and future?
0: Not really. They don't really touch on that very much. It starts off in the modern days and Barbie's telling her little sister Kelly <laughs> a story and then it goes back in time. It's really quite gorgeous.
1: Yeah, I can just imagine the actual doll to go with it and it's like, you know, the little outfits, so it's the ghost of past, present and future, but they've each got little outfits.
0: Mattel should do that. Maybe they're, if they're listening, then maybe they should consider it. There you go. Um, and every year the BBC adapted
1: lots of these famous ghost stories. Every Christmas they had annual Christmas gothic and ghost specials that aired on Christmas Eve.
0: Yes, and that was uh, during the 70s, and I'm sure you you would be able to track down a copy of the DVD if you Googled that. Personally, I prefer the old movies from the 70s, 80s. They're sort of my favourite, um, but they're, they're really good short stories. I highly recommend them.
1: Yeah, I think they're released on DVD through BFI or somewhere, but... um. They did all classic, like, turn of the screw and all those kind of stories. Did you have a favourite of them?
0: I liked one called Martin's Close. Uh, That's one that I liked. But I'd have to say I I pretty much like anything. If anything's to do with a ghost or a haunting, relatively creepy, I'm going to love it. So it's really hard to comment.
1: And they're really beautiful because they're from that British Gothic tradition they're always really atmospheric Um, another one that the BBC did for Christmas was a personal favorite of mine and the original movie is fantastic but the book is actually one of my favorite books which is Susan Hill's The Woman in Black so she actually wrote this story in the tradition of classic Victorian ghost stories And fittingly, it begins on a Christmas Eve when Arthur Kipps is sitting around the fire with his wife and four young children telling ghost stories. When they ask him to tell a story, he becomes upset and leaves the room where he then pens the disturbing memories of his own haunting years earlier when, as a young lawyer, he was sent to the remote Eel Marsh House to settle legal affairs for a deceased estate. This is where he encounters the terrifying woman in black. And BBC adapted this television movie in the 80s that was aired on Christmas Eve. It traumatised a generation of children who watched it that night. It only recently had a nice uh, Blu-ray reissue. But you love that story too, don't you, Karina? It's one
0: of my favourites. I love the original Movie, but I also love the remake with Daniel Radcliffe. I just thought that was absolutely amazing. It was good, very haunting.
1: And that was the comeback for Hammer Horror, I believe.
0: It was, yeah, you're right.
1: Yeah, which is just perfect that they come back with a story so in that British gothic tradition, yeah. which is what they're most well known for, even though they made movies about other things and lots of other genres that's what they're most well known for but that original 80s version of the woman in black i find it it's so chilling maybe people would find that really tame but if you find ghost scary there's just something about that telly movie how she just appears
0: Mm, yeah that's right I, I let my son uh, Jacob watch it only about a month ago and he's only 11 and he wasn't that scared I mean of course he he's my son so he's used to this sort of thing but <laughs> um, he actually thought it was really funny in that part when the lady's face sort of comes down and he was laughing his head off so I find it interesting that years ago it traumatized lots of children yet he watched it and he was laughing his head off it's, quite interesting oh
1: (laughs) (laughs) um so tim burton also features gothic and supernatural themes with christmas and midwinter imagery quite frequently in his films so we have the nightmare before christmas batman returns edward scissorhands i'm sure you've seen and love all these films like i do do you are you a big fan of the nightmare before christmas
0: Always have been. It's another tradition I forgot about. Generally, every year, that's another movie we watch on Christmas Eve. Do you like it?
1: I do, but I, I actually my favourite is Edward Scissorhands. Oh,
0: I love that
1: it's movie. Really sad and really beautiful, but that's a Christmas. It's not ghosts, but it's got that magic. It's got that midwinter, and he that, that is a reoccurring theme in his films.
0: I actually went to see one last night that had movies in the park and it was the Polar Express. I'm not sure if you've seen that one. Uh, it's like an animated sort of computer-generated movie, but uh, they actually had a ghost on that train. As the child goes up onto the roof of the train while the train's going, there's there's a, a ghost and he says, oh, do you believe in ghosts? And it's really quite haunting, I think, for young children. It, it's So that's another modern movie that sort of incorporates the ghost as well
1: other supernatural movies um set around that midwinter or christmas of course the shining um gremlins ghostbusters harry potter and tales
0: from the crypt so some tragic things that have happened during christmas time and and these are things that were in the headlines at christmas time as well in the papers of the time Um, They show us just how many tragedies there really were and a lot of them are really quite sad and bear in mind these are of the newspapers of the time many, many years ago and that is what leads into what we have now with paranormal experiences so they, they sort of lead to hauntings so to speak. Some tragic things that have happened at Christmas time uh, mostly were from candles in trees and these days we of course have the fairy lights but many years ago the tradition was to have actual real candles in a tree and you can imagine all the dangers that that would have led to. So newspapers at the time basically show us just how many tragedies there really were. So there was a Christmas tree fire and it started, of course, by lighting up a candle. For instance, in Sydney at Christmas time in 1938, there was a young boy who was attempting to light a candle on the stage during a play and this sadly went wrong and it resulted in his costume setting on fire. That's just so heartbreaking. There was another tragedy once again in Sydney as well on Christmas Eve And this time it was at Wyalong Hospital. Do you know where that is, Suzanne? No, I'm not sure. Maybe someone
1: can comment and tell us, but I'll I'll look it up after the episode.
0: Excellent, um, because I'm not too familiar with Sydney, but this was at Wyalong Hospital and there was a wardsman who represented Father Christmas and, unfortunately, his beard and his robe caught on fire and he was burnt to death. These are just a couple of examples, but the third one uh, was a similar incident and this one occurred this time in 1933 to a lady who purchased some toys for children at the time during Christmas and she was all dressed up. She was standing near a table which had a candle on it and, of course, that resulted once again in her dress setting on fire and, unfortunately, she was fatally burnt to death. That's horrible. Absolutely, and you can see why we have the fairy lights these days because um, it, it's, it was a very, very common cause of death many mm. years ago the candle, even not only at Christmas but most of the year.
1: And I saw a, a mention of there was a Lane Cove bushfire started by a candle in a Christmas tree that's here in Sydney. Apparently there was an incident there where, a um, yeah, sadly a young girl died in that fire too and it started a bushfire and it all stemmed from a um, Christmas tree with candles. So it is
0: fortunate we use fairy lights today. Definitely. I mean, on the 24th of December in 1891, there was the Windsor murder as well and it was an English gas feeder, Confidence trickster and career criminal Frederick Bailey Deeming murdered his new wife, Emily, her original name was Mather, at a newly rented house in Andrew Street in Windsor in Melbourne. He buried her body underneath the heath and he had previously murdered his first wife, Marie Deeming, and their four children and he also buried them beneath the floor of a house at Rainhill in England in July or August, around that time in 1891. Uh, Their bodies were not discovered until after the Windsor murders, so Deeming was arrested at Southern Cross in Western Australia, so you can sort of see that he travelled around a lot. And after a trial at Melbourne, he was executed in June in 1892. Uh, His notoriety in Australia was such that he was widely believed to be Jack the Ripper.
1: Interesting. So they thought that he was actually Jack the Ripper, and he'd come to Australia.
0: Makes sense, doesn't it? Because um, I mean, that's another topic that we could talk about on another show, I suppose. Jack the Ripper, because mm. there was so, so many different theories. There's a mm. couple in Adelaide as well, but I mean, mm. that's pretty really brutal.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, I guess people just thought because it was so dreadful that, oh, he must be Jack the Ripper. But you had one from Adelaide too.
0: I did, Uh, and once again, that was on Christmas Eve in 1893 this time uh, where a group of Christmas carolers took to the streets on a borrowed horse carriage to spread their good cheer. It was led to them by a very well-to-do businessman by the name of Henry Oxley. In the small hours of Christmas morning, they returned the carriage to Mr Oxley's Sturt Street home that's in the city. So the good cheer was apparent on all sides as the group chatted with Mr Oxley in his front yard before the merrymakers left around 5am in the morning. But as soon as the carolers had departed and his wife of 11 years and three children were sound asleep, Mr Oxley began to implement his Christmas Eve plan. At 7.30am the same morning when the groom arrived to tend to the horses, he found the house eerily quiet for a Christmas morning. He would have expected with three young children that the house would be alive with the excitement of opening presents and things like that. He called out, but there was no reply, so he entered the house and went into the first bedroom where the couple's young son slept. Are you going to get up this morning, the groom asked, but there was no reply. It was then when he noticed that the walls and floor were covered with blood. He then went to Mr. and Mrs. Oxley's bedroom where they were both lying on the bed with their two daughters all dead. Mr. Oxley had killed his entire family with a tomahawk, then slit his own throat with the razor blade, which he still grasped in his dead hand. It's theorised that beneath the Happy Christmas veneer, Mr. Oxley was hiding a secret, which was that he had lost everything in the banking crisis of 1893. So, thinking himself ruined, he murdered his family in a fit of insanity and despair. Something else
1: that happened around Christmas time, which is actually a really notorious Australian murder, is the Gatton murder, or known as the Gatton mystery. Uh, which took place on Boxing Day in the town of Gatton, Queensland in 1898. Gatton is west of Brisbane. At that time, it was just a small stopover point on the road from Brisbane to Darling Downs. The large Murphy family lived outside of Gatton, and on Boxing Day, three of the older children, Michael and his sisters Nora and Theresa Ellen, went to attend a dance, so a, a kind of Boxing Day after Christmas dance at the Gatton Town Hall, but when they got there they found it had been cancelled so they turned around to head home but they never arrived. In the morning when the young people had still failed to return, Mrs Murphy asked her son-in-law, William, to go into the town to find out what had happened. The Murphy children had borrowed his sulky the night before to go to the dance and on his way to town he just saw the distinctive wheel imprints of his sulky turning off the road through a slip rail. He could tell it was the same one because it had a loose wheel that made a unique imprint in the ground, so he followed the tracks and eventually came upon a most gruesome discovery. He found that all three of the young people had been brutally murdered. Uh, The young women had been sexually assaulted and they had been laid out in a field. They'd been displayed in a very peculiar way that was quite deliberate. Both women had their hands tied behind their backs with handkerchiefs. Uh, The horse, still hitched to the sulky, had been shot, and all the bodies, including the horse, had been arranged in a kind of a shape from what I understand, a triangle, but the MO has never been repeated in Australian crime history and remains unsolved to this day.
0: Gosh, that's just...
1: Um, and there's lots of theories, like it was an unusual murder, but it's never been solved. We've got a few Christmas-themed true hauntings for you.
0: We do, and the first one, we're going to take you to Roos Hall in Suffolk. So this is known as one of the most haunted houses in England. The 16th century hall has a hanging tree, an oak tree planted at the site of the old gibbet where criminals were once hung. And inside one of the building's cupboards, the mark of a devil's cloven hoof is said to be imprinted. But the most dramatic haunting happens every Christmas Eve. Legend has it that a headless horseman furiously gallops down the driveway with his four black horses pulling a phantom coach it sometimes also reported that the horses are headless too and that the frightening coachman leaps from the coach described as a force of indescribable malevolence
1: that seems to have strains of um the sleepy hollow the headless horseman
0: that's which, what i thought of too yeah when I read
1: that. which that's one of those kind of winter midwinter stories i i think sleepy hollows may be set at Halloween, but there is definitely in the film, which is also Tim Burton, where the Headless Horseman rests. It's always winter, I just remember. So that's one of those very winter kind of supernatural stories.
0: Absolutely. There's another one as well, uh, the Crescent Hotel in Eureka Springs in Arkansas, which was built in 1886. This is reportedly notoriously haunted, but the spirits get especially lively at Christmas, especially in the dining room where staff have reported the Christmas tree moving from one side of the room to the other. Imagine that. <laughs> I just put that there. <laughs> and menus and place settings scattered. And there, there's there been sightings of spectral figures dressed in Victorian clothing waltzing around the dance floor. Yeah, and another one. Um, this is a mid- my favourite. Is it? Yeah. (laughs) Then there is the mistletoe bride of Bramshill House in Hampshire in England. This is the ghost of a lady named Anne who sometime in the 17th century was married on Christmas Day. After the wedding feast, it was traditional for guests to carry the bride to the bridal chamber, but Anne suggested that they play a fun game and give her a head start of five minutes where she would hide and the guests would have to find her. They all thought this was a merry jest and Anne ran off to hide in the old sprawling mansion, however Anne could not be found. At first everyone thought it was part of the jest, but as the time went on and Anne was nowhere to be found, a feeling of unease began to circulate among the guests. They whispered that she had fled from her new husband, not wishing to be married to him and run off with someone else. Her newly wedded husband, Lord Lovell, was utterly distraught and never stopped searching for his bride in his ancestral home. But no sign or trace of his beautiful bride was ever found. It was as though she had just vanished into thin air. Then one day, 50 years later, Lord Lovell was in a far-flung neglected attic of the house and happened upon an unusual oak panel in the wall. He knocked on it and the panel sprung open, revealing a secret door which led to a small chamber where he found an ancient ornate chest. After great effort, he pried open the heavy wooden lid. Inside was the skeleton of his beloved Anne, dressed in her wedding dress and still clutching her mistletoe bouquet. The inside lid of the chest was crisscrossed with scratch marks presumably once she found that she was trapped inside this old chest and had fought for her life. She would have screamed and cried, scratching furiously with her fingernails, but inside the wall where she was, no one could hear her. Her hiding place would have become the doomed bride's final resting place, remaining undisturbed until that fateful day 50 years later. I have a couple
1: of famous royal Christmas hauntings. Sandringham House, the Queen's private country residence in Norfolk and where the Windsors spend their Christmas holidays is known to be haunted and apparently the resident ghosts have a particular dislike of Christmas cards. Staff and royals have witnessed them moving and scattered around frequently at Christmas time while Buckingham Palace in London is known to be haunted by a monk Before the palace was built, the land belonged to Westminster Abbey and every year on Christmas Day, a monk who was imprisoned here appears dressed in his dark robes and rattles the chains which he was imprisoned in. Anne Boleyn was another, the ill-fated second wife of King Henry VIII who he had beheaded in 1536. She is reported to haunt her childhood home of Hever Castle In Kent, where every Christmas Eve her spectral figure can be seen slowly gliding across the bridge over River Eden towards her family home where she was the happiest. The other beheaded royal that haunts Christmas is the Lady Jane Grey, who was Queen of England for only nine days. She was placed on the throne after the death of her cousin, King Henry VIII's son Edward IV in 1553. The poor girl was just a pawn for the power play of her family and other Protestant lords who had sought to seize the throne by placing her on it. But her claim was always shaky, so after only nine days as queen, she was overthrown and imprisoned. She begged her captors to let her go home, but spent her final days in the Tower of London before being beheaded for treason. Less than a year later, she was only 17 years old. When she died. Now every Christmas Eve she is reported to go on a ghostly pilgrimage a drawn carriage that travels from the tower to Newtown, Linford Church, then on to a nearby park, which was once the site of her family home. It said within the carriage, Jane's ghost sits carrying her decapitated head in her lap as she tries to return home. That's all we've got for you today. So wherever you are and however you spend this time of year, as you look forward to the new season, whether it's in the northern or southern hemisphere, remember these tales of midwinter and the Christmas ghosts that haunt them.
0: I would love to hear if anyone has any Christmas ghost stories or if they have any comments on today's show. Please follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Just search for Laudanum and Lace Podcast. We will be posting photos and pictures related to our shows and lots of other interesting things. And if you have enjoyed the show, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. It really does help us. Thank you so much for listening. Have a happy Haunted Yule. I'm Suzanne. I'm Karina. And we thank
1: you for listening today and see you next time.
0: See you later.